Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hello everyone and welcome to episode 24 of True Blue, True Crime. My name's Sean and with me as always is my co-host Chloe. How are you? Good. Hi. We're both feeling Wednesday in a big way today, I think. But I think so. <laughs> we're yeah. here and we're going to tell our story. <laughs> yeah, we'll do our best. Yes. Anyway, we're warmed up. We've employed our warm-up exercises again. We do, our stretch and limber before we start. <laughs> uh, we are lucky enough this week, Chloe, to have uh, some more Patreon shout-outs again. We do. Thank you and welcome to Aaron Sawyer, Warren Turnbull, Sue Pacey, Joe Wynn, James Barlow, Renee Moore, Andrea, Kelly Arnold, Kate, Tina Kleb Burridge, Kumisa David, Sophie Rodriguez, Kate Luke, and Kat. Thanks very much for the support, everyone. Much appreciated. The case we're discussing today contains graphic descriptions of crimes against young children, and some of the content is quite difficult to hear. So we'd encourage our listeners to exercise self-care when listening to this episode. Today we're talking about a case that takes place right here in Victoria. It occurred in the 1980s but has only concluded in the last few years. And I say concluded, I suppose no matter what justice is dealt, there's never really a conclusion or resolution to the loss of a loved one, especially for a parent who's had to bury their child and to go on living without them. Unfortunately, that is the case today. Sixth of November, 1984, Melbourne Cup Day. They say it's the race that stops a nation. Australia's most famous horse race, it's also a world-class one that's among the top sporting events in the world, sitting alongside other famous races like the Kentucky Derby in the USA and the Royal Ascot in England. 
Horses must be at least three years old and they race for 3,200 metres. It takes place annually on the first Tuesday of November around 3pm. This event has been around since 1861, though I'd wager it looks a little different now than it did all the way back then. Nowadays, Cup Day is still going strong. A well-attended event, there have been crowds of up to 110,000 in recent years. People get really excited for this nation-stopping race. Men and women dress to impress to compete in fashions on the field, where major prizes can be won for those with the best suit or fascinator. There's betting, lots of money to win and lose, mostly lose, and lots and lots of drinking. Footage can always be seen of those beautifully dressed attendees falling over and looking very drunk by day's end. And for those who prefer to watch from home or have no interest in horse racing, there's a bonus public holiday for those of us living in Victoria. But in the early 80s, where today's case begins, none of these things were to be the kinds of things Kylie Mabry would experience. It wasn't to be a day to celebrate. And it certainly wasn't in her plans to be dubbed the Cup Day Girl. Kylie Mabry was born on the 24th of October 1978 to 18-year-old Julie Mabry and an unnamed father. She lived on Gregory Grove in Preston, an inner-city suburb of Melbourne in Victoria, about 10 kilometres north-northeast of the CBD. At this time, Kylie had only just turned six years old. She had a two-year-old sister, Rebecca, and the three of them were living together as Julie had separated from Kylie's father. Kylie was described by her mother as being a beautiful little girl who was talented at calisthenics, a sport that combines gymnastics, dancing, technical skills and strength, often along with small props like clubs and rods. Her mother suspected she might have performed well at the Olympics. It was the 6th of November 1984, Melbourne Cup Day as we said, Kylie spent the morning with her mother Julie and sister Rebecca before they left around 12.45 in the afternoon to go to the Council City Hotel with their neighbour, Lorna Simpson. They arrived at the hotel around quarter past one and stayed until the end of the famous horse race. Incidentally, the winner of the Melbourne Cup in 1984 was Pat Highland with What a Nuisance. Before returning home, they visited Julie's friend Liz Radakovich in Thornbury. By 4.30, they were all back at Lorna's home for some tea. She asked Kylie if she would run to the store to grab some sugar, giving her 90 cents to pay for it. At the same time, Julie was talking to her mother on the phone, but told Kylie she could go as long as she came straight back to Lorna's. For whatever reason, possibly just to be cute, or maybe it was to do with something they were talking about, Kylie asked Lorna how to spell out the phrase, I love you. Lorna wrote it on a newspaper, which Kylie then copied onto her arm. She was thought to have left somewhere between 4.45 and 5.15pm. 
The Food Plus convenience store was located on Plenty Road, perpendicular to Gregory Grove, the street the Mayberries lived on. Food Plus was no more than 150 metres from their home. Kylie was wearing light khaki trousers, a red skivvy and a white singlet. She was barefoot and carrying a strawberry shortcake bag. Shopkeeper Kerry Margarites confirmed that Kylie had been in the store and had purchased a bag of sugar at about 5.30. But around 6, Julie and Lorna had begun looking for Kylie, expecting that she would have made the round trip by this time. When Julie could not immediately locate her daughter, she called the police. Customer Iola Loretta Tamburino reported that she saw Kylie near the Food Plus store, carrying the sugar, but thought she looked like she was lost. Another witness, sometimes reported as a young Italian girl, sometimes a woman, said she saw a girl being driven in a white Holden station wagon, but the police could not locate this witness. Inspector Graham from Ivanhoe sent out police units in cars and on foot to search within a one kilometre radius. They also searched nearby tram lines and the homes of Kylie's school friends. Neil Rickwood, a fire brigade electrician, was driving home around 12.45am after the Melbourne Cup Day holiday. From his car, he spotted Kylie's body in a gutter on Donald Street. Police units had searched that very area around 7.30pm, but her body was not there at that time. It was said she looked like she was sleeping. Keith Moore's book, Mugshots 3, describes the scene like this. She was lying on her left side, seemingly uninjured. Her left arm was tucked under her body and her right arm had flopped, like a rag doll, over the gutter and was resting on the footpath. Her face and the front of her body were up against the upright section of the gutter. The skivvy and singlet were pulled up, exposing part of her lower torso. The words, I love you, were written in ink on her arm. An Inspector Greenway was on the scene by 1.15am and by 2am was breaking the horrible news to Kylie's distraught mother, Julie. Kylie was pronounced dead at 4.50am in Preston and Northcote Community Hospital. The official cause of death was listed as asphyxiation. Six-year-old Kylie had been suffocated while being raped. She suffered severe internal injuries, including vaginal trauma, likely committed by someone three times her size. However, there was no apparent external injuries. The autopsy of Kylie's body revealed the presence of diazepam, also known as Valium, which is a strong sedative. This suggested that she had been drugged before her murder. DNA from the killer was left at the scene, including traces of semen in Kylie's underwear and male brown pubic hair on her right leg. But... In 1984, DNA technology was just not advanced enough to determine the killer's identity, though fortunately, the DNA evidence was properly stored for future use. After Cup Day 1984, the murder case received widespread media coverage. Kylie even received a nickname, the Cup Day Girl, as we mentioned earlier on, and this came from the Sun News Pictorial. But some would contend because the murder happened around the time of President Ronald Reagan's election, a large portion of the news was dedicated to that and coverage of Kylie's case was perhaps overshadowed. Sergeant Peter O'Connor announced a $50,000 reward to anyone whose information led to the arrest of Kylie's killer. 
The public came through with a lot of information, which the police sifted through and investigated. They also interviewed hundreds of known sex offenders. Several suspects came to light. One was a photographer from the area who had been asking parents if he could photograph their kids, but he was eliminated as a suspect. Another was a man trying to solicit explicit photos from a woman who advertised in the Truth newspaper for $5 per pose. Yet another suspect in the early days was dobbed in by one of his three ex-wives. She explained that he worked in the area and was oddly interested in the case. He pointed out where Kylie's body was found, read every related newspaper article and watched news about the case on TV. Police searched the man's home with a warrant where they found pornographic videos and fibres similar to those on Kylie's body. But testing proved he was not the killer. Others were dobbed in to police by the public, including patients blaming their doctors, prison officers blaming inmates and others blaming men who were fathers. Two suspects emerged that were extremely close to the victim, Kylie's grandfather, John Moss, and her uncle, Mark Mayberry. Let's start with John. He was the one tasked with identifying Kylie's body in the morgue. He told police that he didn't believe Kylie would have gotten into the car with a stranger, so she must have been forced or coaxed. Police agreed with this, and therefore John ended up as a suspect. So John effectively put himself in the crosshairs here, unintentionally, but John had some sexual quirks, like enjoying wearing women's underwear. He had a strong interest in the case, even conducting his own investigations outside of what the police were doing. Though he had an alibi for the time at which Kylie was abducted, there was a swirl of accusations around him. His current and third wife, Evelyn Moss, corroborated this alibi, saying they were at a barbecue with many others, so it was definitely not him. John was unable to be contacted until after 9pm on the day Kylie was taken, and he did not arrive in Preston until one and a half hours after her body had been found. His son, Mark, was quick to point the finger at him. He was on a list of suspects that Mark gave to the police, and he told them that John was born John Roy Maybury in Christchurch, but that he had been going by John Roy Moss for 11 years now and gave a false date of birth. Mark also felt that John took the crime rather lightly, claiming that everybody in the family is under suspicion except me. He also exhibited odd behaviour that Mark found suspicious, such as acting erratically around the crime scene, disappearing for hours at a time, and declining to be a pallbearer at Kylie's funeral when he had previously agreed to. Mark also claimed that John borrowed a car matching the description seen by the witness, that John had strange sexual habits and could be violent and used excessive force with children. Police questioned John many times despite his denial, lack of evidence and his alibi. One year later, John died by suicide in October 1985. His body was discovered on the 27th of that month where he had driven his Holden sedan down a remote track in Cranbourne South and parked there. Three suicide notes were found two to his wife Evelyn and one to his friend Artie Fraser. Richard Pidgeon, a vicar in Mornington, said John had been distressed for months and his GP, Stuart Johnston, said he was being treated for depression. 
Evelyn added that she had left John in February of that year due to his changing behaviour and that he had attempted suicide once before. Then there's Mark Maybury, John's son, who pointed the finger firmly at his father. Mark had been in and out of prison because of various drug charges and he had a history of being addicted to substances like heroin, though he was not imprisoned at the time that Kylie was killed. Mark, like his father, had a complicated relationship with his gender and sexuality. During one of his stays in Pentridge Prison, he requested gender reassignment surgery. He also asked to wear women's underwear and clothing. Both requests were denied. He spent 1985 to February 1987 in Long Bay Jail, but was arrested not long after his release for assaulting his sister Julie, Kylie's mother, and her friend Judith Phillips. Mark held them both against their will for about five hours while he assaulted them both and wreaked havoc on Judith's property. He took her car without permission, so Julie and Judith took their opportunity and fled to the police. After they escaped, Mark overdosed on nerve and sleeping tablets, ending in a car accident. There, he was arrested and taken to hospital to be treated for the overdose and shock. During the ordeal, Mark told Julie that if he had to go back to Pentridge Prison, he would try to hang himself. It seems in this instance, he tried pills instead. Soon after, on the 16th of February 1987, he was sent back to Pentridge, just what he didn't want, where he did indeed attempt to hang himself. He spent three days undergoing medical treatment before returning to his cell. He then successfully hung himself later that same day. The suicide note he left behind named two dead pedophiles that he claimed to have murdered, along with describing his hate for child molesters. Julie said Mark had been in trouble since he was seven. He spent time in boys' homes. He'd been in and out of prison multiple times and had attempted to take his own life more times than Julie could count. Fast forward a few years and yet another suspect, Robert Arthur Selby Lowe, caught the eye of police. This was because of his past crimes and conviction as the killer of Melbourne schoolgirl Cherie Beasley in 1994, though that crime occurred in 91. Robert, a former church elder, was given a life sentence in prison for this crime. There were definite similarities between Kylie's and Cherie's cases. Both girls were abducted near their home, both returning from the shops. Both bodies were found discarded in the gutter, and both girls had died from asphyxiation. They were both six years old, and Robert's psychologist claimed that he was fascinated by the colour pink. Kylie had been carrying a pink strawberry shortcake bag while Cherie was wearing pink clothing. He had previously been questioned by police due to being offensive towards some young girls near Preston. He was caught masturbating and trying to entice girls to go with him while exposing himself to them. This incident was not far from Kylie's crime scene. Robert also frequented the Preston area during his work as a salesman, so there are a lot of things that pointed to him as a good suspect. 
It was said that he had had obsessions in the past with other child crimes, such as the murder of Carmen Chan and the death of Azaria Chamberlain. So he was looking pretty good for Kylie's murder. And the amount of circumstantial evidence against him may well have led to charges. But thankfully, by 1997, DNA testing had advanced enough that police wanted to compare Robert's DNA with that of the killer. And this is where the DNA evidence left all the way back in 1984 came into play again. Police began legal proceedings to obtain Robert's DNA. They weren't able to obtain that legally by force at this time. Not surprisingly, Robert heavily opposed this and was able to get legal aid, which is funded by taxpayers, to fight it. This was to challenge the constitutional validity of the Crimes Act in the High Court of Australia, which gave courts in Victoria the power to obtain such DNA samples. Police were fairly confident that his adamant opposition confirmed his guilt. Julia was pretty sure he was guilty too. This fight continued for four long years, during which Detective Senior Sergeant Ron Idles made a plan to surreptitiously obtain Robert's DNA. Their justification was an economic one, stating that if this test cleared him, the police could abandon their long and expensive court battle. Senior Sergeant Idles himself said that, quote, an investigation is really a search for the truth, to either prove or disprove someone's involvement. I wanted to know whether or not Lowe killed Kylie, and getting his DNA would prove it one way or the other. So, I made an operational decision to get a covert sample. There was no legislation which covered covert samples, so I wasn't doing anything wrong. I wanted to do it in a way that was the least disruptive as possible to the prison system and, of course, I wanted it done without Lowe's knowledge. Because if the DNA turned out to be positive that it was him, then I would have looked at a whole range of other techniques to deploy in an effort to get some admission from him. I think I did it with the minimum amount of fuss. Many people said Lowe was responsible for the Kylie Mabry murder. What I did proved he wasn't. It was quite a legitimate tactic, end quote. Though he'd been the prime suspect, the covert sample proved that Robert Lowe was not guilty. However, some police thought that there was enough circumstantial evidence for him to be charged. But in 2001, the official sample was taken and confirmed that Lowe was not the killer. Robert Lowe won the legal battle and the Crimes Act was amended as a result. After this, also in 2001, Julie said, quote, My daughter's killer is still out there. He must be caught. Someone must know something. I am begging them to help police solve this dreadful crime. End quote. Despite her plea, the case went cold. Now we fast forward again, this time to 2014, when police were reviving cold cases, and Kylie's case experienced renewed interest. About this case, Inspector Glenn Wolfe stated, quote, I was in the homicide squad for eight years, and this is the one murder that sticks in my mind as the one I would dearly love to solve. She was abducted and her body was later dropped off in the gutter, just like a piece of rubbish. My view is that she would have been held prisoner somewhere before her body was dumped. Nobody should get away with such a crime, end quote. And Detective Senior Sergeant Boris Buick added, Quote, I was recently contacted by a family member of the young girl that approached prompted me to order a review of the case. 
I think this is an appropriate case to bring to public awareness again just because of the circumstances, end quote. With Kylie's case back under police eyes, the name of a new suspect emerged, Gregory Keith Davies. Known to his friends by his middle name, Keith was the third of 11 children. He was born in Castlemaine on the 6th of September 1942. Three of his siblings had died by suicide, the effects of alcohol and a workplace accident respectively. Keith claimed that he was sexually abused by his father over a long period of time and he claimed he was both molested and raped by him. He left school when he was just 13. In 1988, Keith met his first wife, we'll call her Cheryl, at a pub where she was impressed with his singing. But after 18 months together, Cheryl left him when she became pregnant with their daughter. We'll call her Jill. Cheryl said Keith was manipulative and controlling, but that she was horrified to find out that he had committed crimes in his past, as he had never shown her any signs. It's reported that Keith only met Jill once in his life. Several years later, Keith attended a property in Waterford Park, where his brother lived in a caravan out the back and performed handiwork for a lady named Patricia, who lived there. Keith never ended up leaving the house. He married Patricia in 2004, a widow 17 years older than him. This was Keith's third wife, and is reported to have been a friend of his mother. Waterford Park is about an hour north of Melbourne CBD, out through Craigieburn towards the Kilmore area. It's a small community situated just off the Hume Freeway. There seems to be conflicting comments on what people thought of Keith. His and Patricia's Waterford Park neighbours said they didn't know much about Keith's past, but that he was well known in their community. He assisted them with household tasks, watched their houses when they were away, and let people stay in his home when they were in need. Just a few years ago, he was labelled a harmless old guy who liked to romance his 90-year-old wife. He was a country and western singer who performed at senior citizen centres. And he was a bit of a chef, even known for his delicious lemonade scones. However, some neighbours claimed that they felt something was off about him. Neighbour Terry Burns said that he was disliked in the community and didn't get along with anyone. Keith's own sister-in-law said he was sneaky and that she didn't like him. Perhaps this was because of his disgusting criminal past. Here, we'll discuss the timeline of his known crimes, which add up to a pretty sizeable rap sheet. In May of 1968, Keith was convicted in Melbourne General Sessions, now called the County Court, for larceny, forgery and uttering. This put him on a three-year good behaviour bond. And for those who don't know... Uttering is when a person knowingly defrauds through forged or counterfeit documents. I had to look that one up. On the 25th of September 1970, Keith saw 14-year-old Lucy Stasowicz on the Hurstbridge train line. He hit her several times with a hammer, caving her skull in. He left the carriage, but came back to hit her again on the shoulder. He told police that he intended to rape her, but was turned off by the amount of blood around her. Lucy's parents were told that she would likely die or that if she lived, she would not walk again. Miraculously, she survived and her health improved, but she has no feeling left on the left side of her body. Police stopped Keith at the Diamond Creek station where he was observed appearing very nervous. The police then saw the hammer in his bag. 
Keith was charged with attempted murder and grievous bodily harm, which he went to trial for in November of 1970. He pleaded not guilty and was granted bail, and he was eventually found not guilty of the attempted murder charge by reason of insanity, but was kept in prison at the governor's pleasure for 12 years until his release on the 3rd of November 1982. When he was assessed, he was found to have an IQ of 84, with a state of hysterical dissociation. But worryingly, he didn't receive any medical or psychological treatment while imprisoned. In October 1983, Keith was convicted of exceeding the prescribed concentration of alcohol while driving, resulting in his licence being cancelled. Then, in 1984, a girl told her parents that Keith, a man known to her family, had been sexually abusing her. These parents spoke to others and three more children came forward to admit that Keith had molested them as well. These allegations were reported to the police around the time of Kylie's murder, but no charges were laid. Reasons for this include the police telling the parents that court would be a traumatic experience for the young girls or that the parents wouldn't want the sex offences to be out in public. Before and after the time of Kylie's death, Keith had been sexually abusing 12 children. He would hold so-called group sessions in the caravan at his home where he would molest several children at a time. One child, who's known as Jane, was only five years old at the time of her molestation. She and others were abused for over four years from 1980. One incident involved Keith molesting Jane in the back seat of a moving car while Jane's parents sat in the front. Around 1993, Keith was convicted of a number of burglary, theft and other dishonesty offences. Three years later, in 1996, he was charged for sexually abusing six young girls that he had regular access to. He was sentenced to two and a half years, but only served 16 months. One of Keith's relatives claimed that his mother, Eileen, knew about his sexually abusive tendencies for decades, but never reported it. His third wife, Patricia, stood by him as well. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Back to 1984, Keith was 42 years old at this time. He was working as a houseman, part of the housekeeping department at the Windsor Hotel. He lived in the vicinity of Kylie and her family and says he saw her walking on her own. In fact, Keith was known to the Mayberries. Julie knew that he often tried to give lollies to her and her girls, which she always declined. Julie had also visited the Davies family home as a teen and had delivered pamphlets there. She remembered Keith's mother but could not recall if she had met Keith at the time. However, 
Proximity is the only real link between Kylie and Keith. Police interviewed Keith only two days after Kylie's body was found. They knew of his previous times in prison and complaints of sexual abuse. He told officers that he had been at a Melbourne Cup Day barbecue during the day, had returned home around the time Kylie went out for sugar, but that he spent the night at home alone while his mother and sister were staying with a relative. He drove a white 1979 Holden HQ station wagon, which matched the description provided by a witness. Keith's sister-in-law, Barbara, confirmed his alibi, saying he was with her and Edward, Keith's brother, at the time Kylie disappeared, then spent the night alone thereafter. We don't know if this was investigated further or if police spoke to Barbara to confirm or why Keith was not named as a suspect at the time. For Edward's part, he said that he didn't even know that Barbara gave an alibi for Keith. As mentioned before, the cold murder case gained more attention in 2014. Because of Keith's long list of sexual offences over the years, at least a couple of his relatives put his name forward to police. So on the 8th of April 2016, he was asked to give a DNA sample. The results were a genetic match to the evidence left at the crime scene, with the odds of 100 billion to 1. Keith was formally arrested on the 9th of June 2016 at his Waterford Park home. He was charged hours later and was remanded in custody after an out-of-session court hearing the same afternoon. After this arrest, police offered a $1 million reward for what they called potentially crucial information. Specifically, they wanted to talk to the witness who described Keith's car and two anonymous callers one who contacted police in 1984 and described the car, the other from 1997 who gave the name of Keith as a potential suspect. This is reported to have been one of Keith's brothers or someone very close to the family, as they did indeed call Crime Stoppers anonymously in 1997 to offer Keith's name up. It's worth noting the police did not end up talking to him at the time, because he was just one of hundreds of names given to the police. A never-before-seen video... On Keith? ..of one of Melbourne's most sadistic child rapists and murderers. Gregory Keith Davies was using his middle name to help avoid capture for the horrendous Kylie Mabry killing, a man now busy showing off about his baking skills. And I had made up uh, my favourite recipe of laminate scones. A killer entertaining friends. And he rings up about 10 minutes beforehand. He says, I'm giving you five minutes to put a batch of scones on. <laughs> He's the man finally caught by DNA evidence more than 30 years after snatching Kylie off the streets of Preston. Our information is that when she went to the shop to purchase the sugar, she only had just sufficient money to buy the sugar. It was a crime that robbed Melbourne of its innocence. A six-year-old who was sent to the local milk bar but never returned. Her mother was left bewildered and without answers for decades. She taught her not to go to strangers. Her murderer was hiding in Waterford Park, about an hour north of Melbourne, partnering with a much older woman and trying to be a pillar of the community, attempting to save injured wildlife. They gave me a number of an animal rescue which, who came out. And appreciating the help of locals. The advice that he gave us for 
uh, our roses and that. We can't thank him enough. Even opening his doors to operate as a bed and breakfast. And we offered him accommodation here. Gregory Keith Davies had been on the run for decades before police caught up with him, taking up playing country music and moving to Waterford Park because his brother lived there. Despite pleading guilty to raping and murdering Kylie, locals say his wife remains in shock. It's understood she is still certain that he is innocent. His elderly wife has moved out of the home and Davies himself is locked up at Port Phillip Prison awaiting sentence. You have our love and best wishes. The same respect never afforded to little Kylie Mabry. Chanel Vella, 7 News. On the 29th of May 2017, Keith pleaded guilty to one count of murder and one count of rape during a committal hearing at the Melbourne Magistrates Court. Because of this, the case didn't need to go to trial. A third charge of false imprisonment was on the table, but later withdrawn. The defence and prosecution both agreed that a minimum prison sentence be imposed. Even Keith's lawyer, David Gibson, said that a life sentence was appropriate. He also said that he is a marked man within the prison walls because of the type of crimes he had committed. It's somewhat unsurprising then that another prisoner or prisoners attacked him on the 23rd of July 2017, pouring boiling water on his neck and groin area. This led to 15% of his body being burnt and he needed skin grafts in order to recover. The offender showed no remorse, stating, I'm glad I hurt him. He raped and killed a child. He shouldn't be allowed to live. Later that year, Keith's only daughter, who we're calling Jill, visited him in Port Phillip Prison. She spoke to him about his crimes and why he had abandoned her. She said her father remembered details from the day of the crime, but not the crime itself. He didn't remember raping or killing Kylie, and he showed no remorse. He only reflected that he must be guilty because the DNA said so. For murder, the maximum sentence was and still is life in prison. For rape, the maximum was 10 years, although I'm not sure that's the case now. Justice Lazary considered victim impact statements given by Kylie's sister, uncle and mother. And forensic psychiatrist Dr Nina Zimmerman said Keith did not recall any personal history of mental illness, but that he might have experienced depressive periods. She believed his criminal past showed a diagnosis of non-exclusive pedophilia with no other mental illness diagnosis. So on the 15th of December 2017, Justice Lazary of the Supreme Court of Victoria sentenced Keith Davies to life in prison with a minimum non-parole period of 28 years. The rape charge accounted for eight years of his sentence. To begin wrapping up this case, we'll finish with Justice Lazary's own words to Keith Davies. The murder you have committed is extremely serious because you have killed a defenceless child after raping her. You've presumably committed the offence of rape for some kind of sexual gratification. Having committed these offences, you lied to police at the time and kept what you had done to yourself for 33 years. I wonder how you were able to do that. As well, I am confronted with you now asserting that you have no memory of committing these offences. As I made clear to your counsel, particularly in view of your record of interview, I find that impossible to believe and reject the genuineness of your claimed lack of memory. You may not wish to recall what you have done, but your claimed lack of memory is, I think, more about that than not being able to. Keith was 75 at the time of sentencing. 
He'll be eligible for parole in 2045 when he's 101. Hopefully he chokes on one of his lemonade scones before that time. Kylie Mabry now rests at Faulkner Crematorium and Memorial Park. Her mother and sister both have different names now, Julie Ryan and Rebecca Phillips respectively. It's been reported that Julie moved to Queensland after her daughter's murder for a time and had some relationship and substance abuse battles since the loss of her daughter, which is understandable. But she also lost her father, John Moss, and brother, Mark Mabry, in this time, due to the allegations of their involvement in the crime early on. Here's a clip of Julie talking after Davies was arrested, and I think you can really hear the anguish in her voice, despite it being over 30 years later. It's a pain that you can't describe. Um, The hole in your heart. You can't make anything warm in there, but you can heal slightly around it, but you can't heal the wound. The body of six-year-old Kylie Maria Mabry was found lying face down in a gutter in Donald Street, Preston, by a male at 10 to 1 this morning. She was beautiful. I can't understand what happened to her. It's a crime that stole Australia's innocence. The murder of a six-year-old girl, raped and murdered and dumped in the gutter, sent shockwaves through Victoria and and indeed Australia in that it is every parent's worst nightmare. And no-one can describe a mother's pain like Julie Mabry. It's been too much for me. Taking the doll. And this has to stop. I want this bastard, this monster, put away... I would love to kill him myself. So it's been a harrowing ordeal for Julie, and I think you can see and hear the impact of that in some of the videos of her now compared to when she was younger. But while the arrest and life imprisonment of Gregory Keith Davies probably bought some closure for Julie, it certainly won't bring her daughter Kylie back. Now thoughts are with Julie and indeed the whole Mabry family. Yeah, indeed. This case makes me feel so many things. I'm, of course, so sad for the Mabry family. I'm frustrated to hear about another case of someone who had committed multiple crimes being free, and I wish this had just never happened. I'm glad the family got some closure at the end and can not look back at the darkness, as Kylie's mum said. I'm not a legal professional, so I don't understand the reasons for rulings, obviously, but I feel like we've seen it time and time again where someone is out on bail or some other form of release when they, from the outside, seemingly haven't shown a good reason for it and then go on to commit a crime that could have been avoided if they had been locked up. I know there are many, many cases of people who have rehabilitated after making a dumb mistake, and I'm glad the justice system does give deserving people a second chance. With my limited outsider's view, I don't think this crime justified that. It seemed pathological And surely there wasn't really a strong case for release. I'm nervous to say something like that because I can't even imagine how hard it is to make decisions about things like this. But as a lay person, you can't help but wonder why. Why did previous sentencing happen? Why was it so short? Why did multiple crimes happen and then someone was released? Did I mention that I'm clearly not a legal professional and don't know enough about the system to really have an opinion? (laughs) Um... 
I don't think I have much else to add to this one other than I'm really sorry for the Mabry family and the other people that Davey's heard over the years and I'm glad he's finally behind bars. Sean, your thoughts? I don't believe for a second that he doesn't remember what he did to Kylie. I think perhaps his warped mind thought he'd get off or get a lighter sentence if he was deemed insane by the court again or could be found to be not liable to some extent. There's not really much much that I can add um, that people wouldn't infer or we haven't already said. The loss of a child is something no parent should have to endure, and I feel very deeply for Julie Ryan. It's a sickening thought to think that Davies hammered a young girl's head in and was then let out to re-enter the community to continue offending. I'd like to say something like, those were the times, but sadly it still seems to happen today. Keith Moore is a journalist who has been very involved with this case over the years. Indeed, some of his articles and writing from his Mugshots 3 book helped us a lot in researching this episode. Keith is interviewed by uh, Michelle and Emily from Australian True Crime in an earlier episode of theirs too, and that's interesting to hear his perspective on how the crime affected him too. So check that out. I think we might mix it up next case from the uh, rape and murder, Chloe, and do something a little different. This one certainly hit home a bit, and uh, those are my thoughts. On to some happier ones now, Chloe. Yes. So my happy thought this week... Um, and I need it after that, um, Mm. is that I'm going away for the weekend. So it's not super exciting, but I'm going somewhere coastal, not in Victoria. So I'm hoping to have some semblance of sun, um, and just out of my normal routine, hopefully to recharge, haven't had a break this year. So I'm just excited to not work for a couple of days. (laughs) Good. Enjoy. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. What's well, my, yours? Well, sort of weather-related as well. It's all about <laughs> the weather. The <laughs> it's just that spring's kicked in. You know, it's been yep. a long, cold winter. I had to abandon public transport and start driving to work because oh. I just couldn't cope with the cold. A little sook. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I had the option of a convenient car park, so yep. I took it. But uh, look, I'm glad it's spring now. Yeah, yeah. we've been able to. We, just just that feeling. I think it was last weekend down here. There was just that a bit more sun, you know, yeah, so we just felt like we could go outside a bit more. Um, yeah, great for, great for everyone, great for the kids. So, um, and you know, seasonal affective disorder is a thing and your level of Costanza was getting pretty high <laughs> with the dark cold days. So I'm happy for that too. Yes. Good. <laughs> if you have any case suggestions, feedback or questions, you can email us at truebluecrime at gmail.com. You can join our Facebook group, which is called True Blue True Crime Dash Podcast, and you can find us on Instagram by searching True Blue Crime. If you'd like to support the show, you can head on over to our Patreon page. The link is in the show notes. Over there, you can sign up to get bonus episodes, case updates, debriefs, blooper reels, and much more. And if you are enjoying the podcast, please do leave us a five-star rating and review on iTunes. It really helps us a lot and helps other people find the show as well. Thank you to everyone who's reviewed us recently. You've helped us so much. A big shout-out to Alyssa and Jenny for the research and writing on this episode. We'll be taking next week off on the main feed to do our monthly Blue Label episode on Patreon. Thanks again for listening, everyone, and we'll catch you all next time. Bye.
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.